Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. This is episode 144 of the Meet the Farmers podcast, and I'm your host, Ben Eagle. Today, I'm heading to the Midlands, Warwickshire to be precise, to speak to mixed tenant farmer Charlie Beatty, farming around 750 acres alongside her dad and uncle. This family business has arable, beef, and sheep enterprises, as well as a contracting business. After graduating with a degree in agriculture from Harper Adams, she travelled around Australia uh, selling and demonstrating agricultural machinery. Um, Charlie is very keen about promoting the industry. She's a Farmers Weekly columnist and involved in Farmer Time as well. She's also County Chair of Warwickshire Young Farmers, so certainly she knows how to fill her time. <laughs> Charlie, thank you so much for coming on and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm in such esteemed company on this. I'm flattered to be asked. Oh, you have such a great CV anyway. And just yeah, like I said in that, it's it's really clear how strong sort of PR is for you as well. I watched um, in, in the process of researching this. I watched your, so you did a uh, a thing for Open Farm Sunday. Um, oh, yeah. Which did, is yeah, yeah. A, little, a little video for that. Um, yeah, that's yeah which... I just enjoy talking. I'm just, you know. <laughs> so tell us about your part of Warwickshire, first of all, um, because you're pretty close to Birmingham and Coventry, aren't you? Uh, but you're also um, in really beautiful countryside as well. Yeah, so we're, uh, we're this little strip of green belt that is bang slap in between Birmingham and Coventry. And you, you don't quite realise, thankfully, you don't quite realise how close you are to the cities. But then at the same time, it's the accessibility is fantastic. Like, you know, going on holiday is an absolute dog. I was going to say, because you're you're, you're right right by the airport, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, we are. So that's so handy. We've generally always got a friend's car here because then they save the extortionate parking fees (laughs) at National. Um, So, yeah, it's it's very typical mixed farming, mixed farming around here. So uh, mixed livestock and arable, rolling hills on the bit where we are and... Yeah, it, it is pretty. It is pretty. But um, being so close to the cities definitely comes with their downfalls as well. So um, we are, you know, there's litter everywhere. We are prime fly tipping country. Yeah. Um, and rural, yeah, rural crime is rife. So whilst the access- accessibility and the ease of holiday making, holiday taking is brilliant. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we are definitely too close to civilization sometimes. <laughs> So you're the third generation of your family to uh, your family. Wow. It really is the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> you're the third generation of your family um, to farm where you are. Uh, can you give us a, a bit of history of the farm itself and, uh, and also sort of your, your, your family farming uh, history in, in that area? Yeah. So um, third generation here, but as far as how many generations have farmed before me, I couldn't actually tell you. Uh, my granddad came and took the tenancy here back in 1958. So my uncle, um, had he was about, I don't know, six months old or something when they moved here. And my other uncle, aunt and my dad were all born on the farm. So the farming business now consists of my dad and uncle and my mum and my aunt all in partnership together. And I've been home farming for three years now. Yeah, just coming up to three years. Um, We used to be dairy. So we are called the dairy farm, which confuses a lot of people now. (laughs) Recently did a piece for the BBC and um, they described me as a dairy farmer. (laughs) And we were doing a piece on with sheep in the background. Um, So yeah, we quit dairy back in the mid 80s. Um, Yeah, my dad was 
early teens, mid early teens. So um, we, uh, yeah, I've never known it as a dairy farm, and we've been a mixed, yeah, mixed livestock and arable farm ever since. Yep. Uh, have you ever wanted to do anything other than the farm? I, I, I seem to think that you you wanted to be a vet. Yeah, and I still do. I still do. I'm oh, really? No, I always wanted to be a vet. Yeah, ever when I was like when I was growing up, that's all I wanted to do. When you know, when I was playing, I was playing vets. Um, yeah, absolutely fascinating. I remember. So um, <laughs> this is a bit gruesome, actually. So when I was younger, I had a dog, and she. Um, she broke her leg she actually she, she's a Labrador so she wandered off we're on a farm she wandered off <laughs> and she got um, clipped by the tractor thankfully only clipped okay. and broke her leg and it was pinned um, and when we went into the she so she had staples rather than stitches to hold the skin together and when we went into the vets to have them out I was absolutely fascinated by them <sighs> taking it out. Okay. and the vet jokingly said do you want to take the staples home <laughs> I've got them i've still got the same yeah Fantastic. um yeah no i always wanted to be a vet and i've always been like i when i was little i used to watch vets in practice which is you know vintage now yeah and yeah absolute classic so i think we not that long ago chucked out um recorded videotapes of vets in practice and i was obsessed with that and i just wanted to watch anything like that um but i i didn't try particularly hard in school I was very lucky with my GCSEs. I sailed through on absolutely next to no revision and got pretty, yeah, pretty oh, good. You're one of those people. <laughs> yeah, but then I thought I could do the same at A-level and that <laughs> yeah, absolutely turned out I couldn't and I came out with three E's and a B. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was the end of my veterinary career. So that, that finished when I was 17. But so, you did. You ended up at Harper Adams. I did. To do so agriculture. Did. Tell, tell me about that time. Yeah. So I did, when I was still umming and ahhing about what I wanted to do, I, my cousin went to Harper Adams and he absolutely raved about it, had a fantastic time. Um, and they, I don't know if they still do it. I assume they still do something of the like. They did like a, a residential um, kind of weekend. It was a night and two days for prospective students. So 16 okay. slash 17 year olds. And I went on that and we did like taster courses and taster sessions. And then we had a, a night in the bar, but obviously on pop. <laughs> but I had an absolutely wicked time and I came away and I was like, yeah, I want to go to Harper Adams, um, which is really lucky because when I got three E's and a B in my AS levels, I was like, ah, heck, what are my mm. options now? And uh, it was either retake my AS levels or drop out and go to college for two years. Okay. Um, or the third option was go to Harper Adams a year early and do their access course. All oh, right. Okay. And I only really heard about that out of luck of the draw. I'd been to um, I'd been to the Royal Welsh back in the July, had my results in the mid August. I'd made a friend at the Royal Welsh, and that's what she was doing. So okay. she I can't remember if she'd not done A levels or whatever. She was a couple of years older than me, but she was like, well go to Harper and do the access course like I am um so yeah by pure luck I found out about it rang them up um luckily with like very strong GCSEs they were like yeah no worries we'll take you um didn't tell that just yeah decided not to tell them about the threes and a be at AS level that was fine <laughs> um, and yeah six weeks later I packed my bags and I moved to Newport Shropshire yeah. to begin five years at Harper yeah it's it's funny where things lead on to um 
tell me what, what, what about your placement year what, what did you do for that so I, bear in mind, I was always fascinated by livestock. I'm very keen on livestock. I actually chose to go the opposite end of the spectrum. And for my placement year, I went and worked for Class UK, the machinery deal, uh, machinery manufacturer. Yep. I kind of went into the interviews thinking, oh, you know, maybe I'd like to give like sales and marketing a go. Um, because that was the cool thing that, you know, that was all the, yeah. the what the fashionable girls did. Like yeah. they always, the sales or the, like the marketing route. And I thought, oh, let's have a go at that. And thankfully um the the two chaps that were interviewing me at class uk um saw straight through me and realized and knew <laughs> i would not be suited to that role <laughs> they put me into a dealership well i yeah was based at a dealership in lincolnshire so they put me straight into a hands-on and okay. about role um driving tractors rather than in an office and i am eternally grateful to them for that because i was young and naive and they knew better so <laughs> i ended up working yeah being dealership based I was based in Sleaford in Lincolnshire and I traveled mainly across Lincolnshire and Yorkshire so there were seven dealerships that I was hopping between and I my official role was sales and demonstrations placement student so I basically tagged around with the salesmen and drove demo machines for them so it's a lot of moving them to and from different farms and um, I got to, so we were also a dealership for Lemkin um, cultivation kit, and the Lemkin guys were fantastic. Like, like there was there were two two three chaps that I worked with particularly, and they were just so keen on like teaching me. Yeah, they were really really good. They didn't you know they didn't just expect me to take it there and then take it off me and do the demo themselves. They were like no because if we can get you to do this, then it's easier for us. <laughs> they were really really good. Um, and yeah, and then over the winter when it was quieter and less going on on the demo front, I spent a bit of time in the workshop as well. And yeah, it was it was fantastic. I, I really, really enjoyed it. And I learned so much. Like, yeah. you know, I was competent on a track to start with, but it just, it massively broadened my horizons. Yeah. Excuse me, what, what advice would you give to students who perhaps thinking about their placement? Um, oh, do it. Diff different uh, so, options. So for, for, yeah, for starters do the placement like it, it was the making of me and it led it opened so many more doors for me as well I think because you get more of an opportunity because you're not there for that long you get more of an opportunity to do things that you might not necessarily get the opportunity to do as a graduate with a graduate they're kind of taking you for life so I think they're a bit more cautious about things whereas with a placement student you've there's so many opportunities out there like for different industries to go into and different like all the sectors and yeah I, I absolutely loved my placement and talking of opening doors, um, that led you on to a trip down under. Um, tell me about how that came about. And then also, yeah, tell me about what you got up to when you were down there. Yeah. So I, at the end of my placement year, I was offered a graduate job with Class UK and that was to be head office based. And I strongly considered it because they are, they're known for being a fantastic employer. Um, you know, it would have been a great job for me. It wouldn't have been the job for me, which I now know. But at the time, you know, I wasn't sure. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I enjoyed my placement year, but I knew I wanted to travel. That was non-negotiable. So, and okay. I told them, you know, I was, I was, I was honest with them. And I said, look, I, I want to travel. And they said, well, how about we set you up with Land Power, which is the franchise that owns the class. Yeah, the company that owns the class franchise out in Australia and New yep. Zealand. They're looking for kind of a, a combined demonstrator would you be interested? And 
I'd not really done much combine driving because that's obviously I was in Lincolnshire in Yorkshire, massive yeah. Arab. Yeah. Um, the combine driving is the one that the salesmen quite enjoy and they want to do. Okay. <laughs> so the most I'd done was moving them from place to place. I'd had a couple of days on one. Um, and But of course I was like, yeah, I'll do it. I'd love to do it. <laughs> so I jumped in the deep end with the sharks. Didn't really know what I was doing. Uh, swatted up loads, watched YouTube videos, everything. And you can't learn to drive a combine like that, but I gave it my best shot. <laughs> and I winged it and... I did all right <laughs> so I had there were a couple of incidences um <laughs> but overall I did pretty well I took to it pretty well I enjoyed it which is a huge thing and yeah luckily for me the salesman that I worked with out there didn't know the first thing about it so it was my own free reign <laughs> so I, went out, I traveled out two days after graduating and um, so our graduation at Harper is in September I traveled out at the end of September um had all these big ideas of Australia I landed in Melbourne expecting it to be like 45 degrees got off the plane and had to put a jumper on so I was Brilliant. like oh my god <laughs> where have I come point already um, <laughs> and I spent a couple of weeks in Melbourne at the head office waiting for things like a credit card and whatnot to come through and then as soon as that all came through they flew me out to Western Australia and I was in a little town called Northam which is about two hours northeast of Perth so in the central wheat belt um really not that far from Perth at all in the grand scheme of things in Australia and yeah I spent well I spent like four months five months nearly there four months um yeah and I pretty much for about yeah within about 150 kilometer radius of the dealership I just traveled on combine from farm to farm to farm to farm and just demo this combine um and yeah it was brilliant i did have an incident on my first uh, my first farm which so, was uh yeah so I, <laughs> can I you got, can you talk about this so, yeah so i got i got the nickname flexi lexi okay. and it's not as dodgy as it sounds <laughs> are you sure <laughs> we can talk about this yeah i'm sure i'm sure so we were harvesting barley, I can remember this, and I don't know how they grow it out there, but they grow it in pretty much sand. They don't have soil out there in the central <laughs> wheat belt, it's sand. And I learned, and in hindsight, hindsight's a wonderful thing. You shouldn't, if there's a mound of sand there, really, there's a mound of sand there because there's something underneath oh, it. Oh no, I know where this is going. Yeah, so we're just going along at a fair pace because it's a really thin crop, you know, you can really kick on. And I just thought, yeah, you know, we'll just skim the top off this bit oh. of sand. Um, we went straight through the sand, but we did not go straight through the tree stump that was underneath it. No. So, and it caught right on the end of the header. And oh, it, didn't, no. it, it didn't, the only damage it did to the actual header was a couple of knife sections. <laughs> I, I don't know how it did that, but the face plate at the bottom of the feeder house on the combine, it just warped it. <laughs> oh God. So, First farm. Yeah, first farm. So that was a fantastic start. So I'm just so we. It was all up from there. It was all up from there, thank God. Um, and yeah, and it was like, how did that just happen? And you know, hindsight, like I say, is a wonderful thing. Yeah. We had luckily another combine that had been that was sitting in the yard of a dealership, the local, de- the other nearby dealership, which was four hours away. Um, so I went down to get that 
and was driving a brand new Lexian with a very worn faceplate on for the rest of my time out, which, you know, so everyone asked and everyone got told. And that is, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, because it being called a class Lexian, it was, yeah, Flexi Lexi. And Fantastic. farms are a long way. There's a long distance, big distance between farms out there. But you wouldn't think it with how quickly word travels. <laughs> so, yeah, everybody knew. <laughs> so so after that time, what, what did you do before you came back to the UK? So after, um, so I did six months with um, Land Power. And then I, I decided that, so they offered to sponsor me. Um, after six months, I was meant to be coming back to the UK and going to work for Class UK. Oh, right. Okay. After, yeah. After about six weeks with Land Power, I realised that six months was not going to be long enough. So I said, thank you, but no thank you. Right. Um, and yeah. So after my six months with Land Power, I decided that I wanted to get my second year visa off my own back because I didn't want to be tied to them. I, you know, I, yeah. I loved for them. They were fantastic. The money was good. I travelled everywhere. It was it was an incredible job, but I, I just knew I wanted to see a bit more. Yeah. So I went and worked on a livestock property in central New South Wales and they were family friends. I'd spent Christmas with them. Um, and yeah, I went and spent just shy of four months working with them. And this was, so this was the, our summer. So the UK summer of 2018. Okay. And, it was right in the middle of their last big drought. And I that I've just I will never forget how barren it looked. And and they were a sheep property, but they'd sold all the sheep because they were having a really big problem with lameness. So they'd gotten rid of all of the sheep, but I think it was like something like ten thousand head they they used to have on the property. It was a ten thousand acre property. Okay. Um, and they got cattle in. I can't remember how many cattle there were about, around maybe 150 or something. So not too many, yeah. uh, but it was just dust. Like there wow. was, there was no forage. Um, so that was really, really eye opening. And it was, you know, it was obviously a worry to the family I was working for, and, mm. but it was, it was out of their control. So mm. it was, it was just one of those things, you, you know, it was every week it was a debate, you know, do you, keep hold of the cattle or do you sell the cattle but the cattle are, the cattle were lean you know they, they wouldn't fetch a lot or do you keep hold of them hoping that the rain comes but having to know you could feed them in the meantime so yeah and in the end they, they kept hold, they kept hold of the cattle for as long as I was there um and I spent my pretty much the whole four months with them I do did still, a lot of- um, do you still keep in touch with them now yeah yeah really good family friends really good family friends um they've had a lot of rain there now this year okay. so yeah. the photos they, they put photos on facebook and i can't believe it's the same place mm. so it's yeah it's incredible um it's all green and lush and like all the creeks are flowing and and things like that but yeah when i was out there it was dust um so yeah we did a lot of boundary fencing so they were their like plan for the kind of next 10 years was to get the whole property the whole ten thousand acres um exclusion fenced so uh they wanted kangaroo fencing around the around the outside because half the problem with the drought was that the can they the kangaroos were of such a high density there that anything that was growing okay they were taking straight away yep. so um yeah their aim was to get it all kangaroo fenced i can't remember what the how long they want like over what kind of period but yeah so it's all metal fencing out there there's no wooden wow. fence like i said that's a lot of fencing it is a lot of fencing. 
can't remember how much we did. It's like two kilometers or something like that in this one bit. And it was, mm. you know, up over like rocky mountainous terrain. And yeah, it was incredible. Like it was hard going. Um, but all of us were out there. We were all doing it at once. Um, and I still don't really like fencing. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I spent four months there. And then I'd, I'd spent a little bit of time in Queensland with class as well. And I got a job with one of the class customers driving a combine for a couple of months on the Queensland, New South Wales border. So I headed up to there, headed up, yeah, headed up there in the October of 2018, spent two months with them probably. And then I flew out to New Zealand for five weeks for Christmas and New Year and do a bit of traveling over there, came back. And then I went harvesting again for, um, for the same company, uh, for the same farm. Okay. And yeah, and then just travelled really. Yeah. So, so with all that excitement, what brought you back to the family farm? Um, I was tired of living out of a suitcase, to be honest, which yeah. now I look back doesn't seem like a good enough reason to have come home. But at the time I needed to come home for a bit. Yeah. I just needed to settle in one place for a little while. Like I was, I was living out the back of my car. It was hard work. So came home and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do when I came home. I knew there was going to be like, it was uh, late spring. So I knew there was going to be work for me on the farm, um, going into harvest and whatnot. Um, and I thought, yeah, you know, I'll decide. And I've just never left really. Yeah. So yeah. I'm still here. It's three years, yeah, nearly three years later. And I've, I'm still, yeah, still, still here. So still there. So let's, uh, let's talk about uh, your farm itself. Let's talk about the farming operation. So, you, as we said in the intro, you're a mixed business. You've got 80 Simmental uh, beef sucklers, 300 North Country mule breeding ewes, and the arable enterprise. Um, so, who runs what on the farm, um, and and how does it work? So it doesn't. It's not really a case of who runs what because we're all we all do it together, I suppose. All mucking. Uh, yeah, my uncle is less involved with the sheep. He's not really that fussed on the sheep, um, and I guess the sheep being the smallest enterprise they're what I've got the most say in now um as in so I make yeah I make most of the decisions with that now and I think because it's the easiest enterprise to hand over because it's worth the least (laughs) so you know it's been easiest for them give it give her the sheep give her the sheep yeah yeah give her the sheep we don't you know (laughs) Uh, this is when you know this is when uh, the dead price is like three pound fifty still um yeah, so we all, we all do it all really. Um, uncle, my uncle drives the combine. That's his. That's his domain. Um, sometimes I get if he has something that he de- desperately needs to go off and do, he might give me a couple of hours on it over the summer. Um, so that's not that's nice. I don't mind. I quite enjoy corn carting and being here, there, and everywhere. So it doesn't really worry me. Um, and that's about it, really. Oh, he does all the spray sprayer driving as well. But I, I really enjoy the arable side and kind of the how and why we do it and I'm getting really into that and trying to yeah get our enterprises more integrated again so um you know social media is a fantastic place for learning what other people do it gets a really bad rap but I've learned a lot of social media and you meet the people you meet through it as well so the people you can chat to and share experiences with and everything like that so um this year we well now last year we grazed our ewes on our oilseed rate so we haven't grown oilseed rate for 
three years now because the last time we grew it, it got absolutely annihilated by flea beetle. Um, so we roasted off and we drilled beans instead. And I, yeah, spoke to a couple of people and persuaded, I kind of gave them my case and talked them into us having a go with oilseed rape again. And we've companion cropped it with buckwheat, clover and fenugreek. And the buckwheat did an incredible job. It shot up, um, went into oilseed rape, rape camouflage mode, hid it from the pigeons, hid it from the flea beetles. The oilseed rape got away. That was fantastic. Um, and then we grazed the ewes on it as well. Um, and that was, it kept them, kept them going for yeah. not as we thought. Um, yeah, dad was thinking we might get like three or four weeks out of them. It was about, I think it was 15 days and 17 oh, okay. days. Field, okay. So not very long. Um, and at that point as well, I was like, they need to come off. Like, <laughs> we, the, both the fields are, we've got um, a dual carriageway next to us and both of the fields are off the side of the bridge of the dual carriageway. Okay. So when you're driving up, you're looking down on it and there was a lot of green leaf matter on the floor still, but not actually attached to the plant anymore. Right. When you're driving past and looking down, it looks really green and leafy still. Yeah. When you go into the field, because I was checking the sheep every day. Yeah. When you go into the field, you you quite quickly realise actually there's not that much of the plant left. <laughs> they need to go um, now. <laughs> yeah, we need to get these off. Um, I dragged them down and was like, look at this. I need to go now. Because it had been my idea as well. Yeah. Well, not my idea. Yeah. Not, not an original idea, but because it was me that, pushed it yeah like if this goes wrong if this goes too far and we get this wrong yeah I was it's on you <laughs> yeah it's all, all on me um so yeah so we grazed the oilseed rape this year and we've also grazed some of the cereal crops so we put um because it's been a nice kind winter as well and quite dry um I actually ran some ewes on some of the the wheat which was great so they've taken that down um and then some fat lambs on some others and the fat lambs I mean, I put some really scraggy, rotten, rubbish lambs on there. Someone else has moved them and put their sheep on because the lambs I took off <laughs> were top notch. That wheat has been like absolute rocket fuel to those yeah. lambs. It was fantastic. Yeah, we put them on and we, we touched them before we put them on and we were like, oh, these are a bit lean. Um, and then a few weeks later, we were like, right, we could really just do with seeing if we could have a pull off. And because we, we do lamb boxes as well. Yeah. Um, right, could really do it with having some for lamb boxes and we pulled them off and we were like whoa we're gonna <laughs> market as well uh, so that was yeah that was great we'll definitely be doing that again um but yeah so we all yeah we all take part in everything really um it's quite nice like i do get to express my ideas and opinions and bring new things into the business um i do get kept in my place still at the same time and just <laughs> checked back which is good which is good sometimes I don't think so and sometimes it's very frustrating but um yeah I do need checking a bit so <laughs> so how uh, how as a business are you finding uh the uh input cost rise <laughs> terrifying I was first spinning the other day and I had to put fuel in the tractor and I was like oh my god this is yeah. the most expensive day I've ever had um yeah it's, it's terrifying but at the same time it's probably so with all the things I'm reading and looking at other people doing, like I'm fascinated by agroecology and regenerative farming and all that and looking at ways that we can reduce that anyway. I, I read Gabe Brown's book about two, no, three years ago now. And two, three years ago, whenever. And 
I've been kind of like pushing for these little changes for a while. And now with inputs being so expensive, it's forcing our hand. Yeah. So we've yeah. got to look at alternatives. And I tried establishing some um, dwarf clover onto some potato ground last year. So we have we have a local contractor that grows potatoes on our land. And I'm not a fan of them because they make such like not the contractors. They're really good. And they, they're early potatoes. So they're off like by end of July. But the potatoes in general just make a mess. Mm-hmm. Um because they are they're, they're heavy tillage yeah yeah it, the, the very, just, very nature of potato enough. production yeah. yeah yeah exactly um and i was like right i want to see if we can establish a dwarf clover onto this land and then direct drill the wheat into it um but we did and the clover established really well and i was really pleased with that but it just wasn't big enough by the time we came to drill the wheat into it and the drill just ripped it up so that wasn't a success but it hasn't completely been written off. I was pretty miffed by it because it was a failure. And, you know, everyone, I don't know, you just, you get knocked by failures. Yeah, there's no such thing as a um, failure. So it's all the, it's all, it's all these learning points. Yeah. yeah a, lessons for the future. <laughs> um, now I know that either it needs establishing earlier or the wheat needs drilling later. Yeah. Um, but we're still this year, you know, my uncle's now going on about trying to establish, um, a, a clover in a standing crop and companion cropping and all that kind of thing and i will have to remind him that if he's going to do that then he's going to have to go easy with the sprayer at the same time but we'll cross that bridge when we get to it we are looking and it's forcing us to look at alternatives to synthetic fertilizers so you know um there's a seaweed alternative and our agronomist has kind of just said yeah no don't go with that one for now and which is annoying because like you see that and i'm like oh let's have a go but apparently yeah. it won't viable for us but i i don't really know enough about it to cast a decision on that or cast a vote on it but it is it's yeah it, it is good and and it's other things like you know we haven't got a massive black grass problem but it's there and it's only getting worse each year so we've got one field that is yeah full of black grass and brome and we're going to take this yeah this year we're probably going to establish like a gs4 or some sort of herbal lay in there and yeah maybe trying to either take a cut off it and silage it and graze lambs or either use all lambs on there yeah. um, and just have a bit of a break there. And it would be nice to start doing that and just putting something like that into our rotation um, some sort of legume mixture. Cause we do have beans in the mixture, but it, it needs to be more than just that. So mm. yeah, while it is, it is scary with all these rising costs and everything, it's, it's opening doors as well. It's not mm. all, I don't quite think that George Eustace understands the severity of it. <laughs> Getting farmyard manure, manure on everything isn't quite as simple as he makes it out to be. But, you know, there are alternatives and it's it's now is this opportunity for us to find them and have a go. You mentioned there's, there's quite a few partners in the business. Uh, there's obviously your, your dad, your uncle. Um, but forgetting all of them, uh, for a minute what would you ideally like to do with the business in the future i they, i'm sure they will be listening to this as well <laughs> so I might not tread tread that. carefully I might not <laughs> um what would i like to do um i'd like to probably take slightly bigger steps into reducing our reliance on artificial inputs um at the moment it's baby steps and it i understand it as well though because they are i 
they remind me that we always have to pay a rent check. We don't own, we're tenants. We've always got to pay our rent. And it's almost, it's not a case of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But it almost is, you know, it's mm. work. We've made that rent check mm. every year. There's not, you know, why stray too far away from what's working for us? But at the same time, they are both aware that we do need to change. There are changes to be made. Um, so that's one thing, which is, you get a really generic answer, but <laughs> it okay. is. Um, and the other thing is I'm really passionate about education. So I think that a big part of the sustainability of British agriculture is building on the relationship or improving the relationship we have with our consumers and the general public. So um, like you mentioned farmer time earlier, and that's a great one. That's really rewarding chatting to school kids yeah. and they're so much more robust than you think they are. Yeah. So the first time I did it, I was like really cautious and I was like, how do I say things like slaughter and, and stuff? <laughs> Um, and the, but the questions they ask, you're like, yeah, I can say those words. It's not a problem. Yeah. What, and, um, what, what year group are you working with? Um, so I've mainly done primary school. Okay. So I, I think I've only done, so I sometimes get roped into like a one-off call. Okay. And I've only ever done one that's been secondary school, I think. Right. Um, but yeah, so the group, the, um, schools I work with are primary. Yeah. Um, so I've had as little, as little as like. I think there'd be year one or two, year two probably. So like seven and then all the way up to 11, 12. Yeah, 11, 10, 11. Um, and it's massive. Like they don't, that doesn't sound that far far apart, but the, the change in the kids is is huge. Yeah. Do you yeah, think you, do you think you might like, I don't know, I, I, I'm sort of just, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but yeah. Do you think you'd, you'd maybe like to do something more, more concrete with, with education, perhaps mixing, yes. mixing your yeah. farming? passion with your education sort of interest yeah, as well 100%. so I do often look into the grants that are available and they're quite limited to be fair or either that or I'm just not looking in the right place I think it's it's yeah I'd love to to be able to do that and open it up properly to to school children and have day trips and that kind of thing you know lambing time we've had the local cubs and the local scouts out and um yeah if any friends say oh can I bring the kids up I'm like yeah go on bring them up because there's just there's nothing as magical as watching them watching a you giving birth and them seeing that for the first time like I've seen it thousands of times and I still find it incredible yeah. like I will still if I'm to a quieter point in lambing and I see a you lambing I will quite happily sit there and watch her yeah and I've I've seen it hundreds of times. I know what happens like I'm well aware of it but it's it's the same with cows carving in, in fact I, I think even more so with cows carving but that's probably because I don't get to see that as often yeah. usually I carve themselves and we go out and there's a new calf trotting around so which is just the way it should be but yeah so having the cubs and the scouts out and they came out right when we were in the thick of it as well and they just yeah both dad and I were in our element because dad loves it dad absolutely loves loves kids so he was having a whale of a time showing them off and telling them what was going on but yeah I would love to be able to do more down that education route and you know open the farm up more to to school children or to families and things like that it's just hard with with the tenancy as well yeah absolutely it's um i i I hear that so so often what are your plans this year away from farming when i I know you're really into good live music country music and it's any gigs lined up or do you sort of take taking going with the flow this year yeah so um 
I've got one at the start of May, which should have gone ahead back in May of 2020. Oh, wow. that one's been a long time coming. Um, so again, a country music group. Yeah, big into country music, which was amazing out in Australia because it was all over the place. Just come back from a weekend in Glasgow as well at the BBC Country to Country nice. uh, weekends. That was fantastic too. Um, really enjoy rugby as well. Massive, massive Leicester Tigers fan. What else, what else are my plans outside of farming? I think young farmers take so much of my time up yeah, at the moment. I, I, it uh, must do. It really must yeah. do. Let's, let's talk about that. Um, when you have been heavily involved in young farmers for, for several years. And like I mentioned the, in the intro, you are county chair for Warwickshire. Um, for anyone who hasn't been a young farmer who, or who might be interested in joining, um, just run through your experience. Okay, so young farmers isn't really what it says on the tin. It isn't just farmers. So I'm part of a club um, called Colesville and actually farmers, so us that are our, our farming in our club are in the minority. Okay. Uh, most are, you know, we've all got an interest in farming or the countryside or live in, live in a rural area, if you can really class around here as that rural because we are so close to the cities. <laughs> But yeah, it's not it's not just about farming it, you know, the, and the competitions and the, the experiences you get with with young farmers. Like, you know, we've just been at the um, the area rounds of public speaking and choir and cheerleading. And um, what else have we done? Like, there's there's loads of competitions. Yeah, and the really diverse. Yeah, the art, there are the agricultural competitions as well. But it's it's so much more than that. And sports as well. Sports is a huge part of young farmers. Um it is, yeah, a lot about competing. It is for me anyway. I'm very competitive. Um, so, yeah, I joined when I was 13. I got to a point where um, I'd got friends and we had started going ice skating on a Friday evening in Coventry. And I started wanting to go every Friday. And at that point, mum and dad said, right, it's time for us to go to your farm. Because <laughs> they didn't want me going out in Cov on a Friday night at 13, <laughs> You know, I understand. I get, <laughs> get that. So they pushed me towards young farmers, thankfully. And yeah, I got involved straight from the start. I'm quite bossy, um, <laughs> bit of a control freak. So I got involved with the committee from quite a young age. And then it obviously not so much when I went off to uni and then went traveling, had a few yeah. years out. And then came home and knew I'd be involved again, but didn't quite think I was going to be involved at county level. Mm. Um, or anything it just kind of got mentioned about going on one of the committees and then I ended up on one of the committees and then suddenly it comes around to the AGM and nobody's standing as vice chair one of those moments where everyone steps back <laughs> yeah right here I am nearly three years later and now I'm county chair so and it's great I really love it and it's really rewarding but it has been a really tough year coming out I was, of COVID I was gonna say how, how was it through COVID through lockdown yeah, we're, we're a small county. So we, um, like staff wise, we've got our county administrator, Sue, and she's great. She is a, a font of knowledge and she is like, I, I would be lost without her. Um, but we don't have a county organiser, which a lot of counties do have. So we don't have a paid member of staff to organise events and fundraising and all that kind of thing. So that falls on the, um, on the shoulders of our committees. And it is a lot to ask unpaid volunteers to do. 
um so many of my evenings are taken up with meetings and and it is rewarding like you know I I think for me the important thing for me is that I got so much out of young farmers that I want to make sure that our juniors coming through now are going to get the same out of it they're going to have the opportunities to get as much out of it as I did and that's really important for me before we wrap up um let's turn to sort of the farming farming issues side of the of the podcast um what for you and there are there are many but yeah what, what for you would you say is is up there in terms of one of one of the one of the most prominent farming issues at the moment uh for me it's got to be the uncertainty surrounding our entire industry um obviously Brexit has brought the loss of the common agricultural policy. Um, basic payments are being phased out. Elms is being talked about still, but changing every single day. And no, just, you know, we all, we all know it's going to be more of a public money for public good situation, but nobody really knows where it lies. Like nobody knows where that support is going to be. And, I have so little faith in our government. It's, you know, it doesn't help with George Eustace this week going, oh yeah, we've got loads of farmyard manure. We'll just, instead of synthetic fertilizers. And it's like, you've got no idea and you're making these big decisions for us. Um, And I completely agree that we need to move more towards that working with the environment and moving away from those artificial inputs, but it's not an overnight situation. It's not just going to happen overnight. We need especially as a tenant farmer, you know, we haven't got those financial assets to borrow against to make yeah. the big investments yeah. for those years. We don't have that. You know, we've got our, our capital and machinery and our livestock, and that is that is what we have. And to change the way we've done things, we, we're more than happy to change. We're more than happy to adapt and learn and improve. Like, you know, we want to, but it's not going to happen overnight and that is yeah that is terrifying of what's going to be expected of us really what the government going to want from us and and in turn what the consumer is going to want from us and is it going to be realistic or are we going to be some of those that don't survive which way is it going to go i don't know we always finish the show with the same two questions uh the first one charlie if you have a message for the public any message what would it be we are trying to improve we want to improve we are farming to the highest environmental and animal welfare standards in the world and we know we're not perfect but we're working towards it the only way we can ever achieve that is with your backing Um, with knowing where your foods come from how it's been produced knowing yeah understanding the what why and how of what we do there are so many of us out there that are willing to explain and show as long as it works both ways. And finally, a message for your fellow farmers. Always the hard one. Yeah. Wow. Um, (laughs) Educate, don't berate. Um, It's something I say a lot. And I think it goes for both talking to consumers and within our industry as well. You see a lot, especially, so one of the bad points of social media, um, you see so much criticism on there. You'll get someone, you know, a youngster starting out, asking a question on on Facebook or something like that. And some of the responses on there are just, 
you know it goes back to if you don't have anything nice to say don't say anything at all yeah absolutely. and they're just you know we're an industry that is aging rapidly we need to encourage new entrants and youngsters in well we will leave it there um but a massive thank you charlie for coming on the show honestly and i just wish you and the family the best of luck for next few years and beyond and um well done for everything you're doing uh i can't remember where i was it's been it's been a long day it's been a long day (laughs) that's that was it that's what i was gonna say uh what's what's your handle on social media if anyone wants to follow you uh so on facebook we're at meriden farm and then on instagram i'm at globetrotting farm girl which seems a bit ironic because i've been based in work <laughs> workshop for three years now but i was traveling up at the time <laughs> so you never know what might happen in future maybe, yeah. maybe keep 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 that handle just in case <laughs> yeah. but as you know thank you next time um, I will be heading up to Aberdeenshire uh, to speak to Nikki Yoxall. Um, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on whatever platform you're listening. And please do also spread the word to anyone who you might think might enjoy the podcast. Um, so I hope you can join me next time. But until then, have a great week. <laughs>